Well, this morning is a a good morning for me. I hope it is for you as we begin a new series through the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is one of five what they call major prophets. There are five major, 12 minor prophets. Some people don't call them major minor, some do, but we will. Major and minor, not in a sense of importance. He's not a major prophet because he's somewhat important, but the volume or the length of his book, Isaiah is considered one of the major prophets, as is Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, some other names you may know. We also know that there are 12 books of the minor prophets, Prophets like Jonah and Haggai or Malachi, as the Italians like to say, Malachi, shorter books, but important as well. We're calling this series The Gospel According to Isaiah because there's so much in it, so much information about the truth of Jesus and the truth of the gospel. It also reveals, I don't know, any other book of this magnitude that reveals the, the character and the attributes of God. Studying Isaiah is like studying the whole Bible. In fact, Isaiah has been called the Romans, the book of Romans in the New Testament, the Romans of the Old Testament. We'll read about the holiness of God, the absolute moral purity and goodness of God, about the judgment of God, the wrath of God towards sin. But we will see throughout this book over and over again, we'll see today as well, how gracious and merciful God is. As he forgives and redeems his peoples from all nations, all tribes, all tongues. Isaiah is the story of the gospel. If you've been with us any amount of time, you know that we are to do a little background before we get into this book. Some context. Knowing the historical background and purpose of a book, uh, particularly in, in prophets as well, uh, is, is a key to proper interpretation. You have to understand where is Isaiah in context of Scripture? Um, if you read one of the, the minor prophets, Haggai, chapter 1, verse 4, Haggai preaches this to, to, uh, to the people of God. He says, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Well, the context of that is God called his people in the book of Ezra back to the land to build the temple. And they went back with great enthusiasm, began to build quickly. Things happened fast, and then they got complacent. We never get complacent, right? They got complacent and started going back to their own houses to build. And Haggai says, listen, you dwelled in paneled houses, nice homes, but my house lies in ruins. Get to the work that I sent you here for. The book of Isaiah has context too. But one of the things I want to say right up front as we get into this book is that the context of Isaiah is rather a lengthy context. All right? As we get further and further into the book, we're going to see context, some some context change. So I want to say to you here, I want to say to you that are home, you are going to need the word of God on your lap opened up iPad, iPhone, whatever, uh, before you as we go through this book. We will not be able to put all the verses up on the screen, okay? We have Bibles in the back. If you don't own a Bible, we absolutely want you to have the Word of God. Grab one in the back and keep it. But we're going to have the, I'm going to have the verses up today, but it's not going to happen because we're going to go through bigger chunks of this book. There are 66 chapters, so we don't want to be in here 
you know, for the next 35 years. So we're going to deal with bigger chunks of Scripture. But the context of Isaiah, we'll look at some background today, but the context of Isaiah is quite large. So if you have your Bibles open, turn to Isaiah 1, and you'll see very clearly. It says the vision of Isaiah. Now, when you think of vision, don't think primarily or simply like a dream. The actual word vision in the Hebrew speaks of the word of God, God revealing himself to his people. So God is showing and revealing the word of God, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem when in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Okay? So this means that Isaiah has been called to be a prophet and to preach God's word somewhere between 739, 740 B.C. through 686 B.C. A lot going on in 50 plus years in the life of Isaiah. So rather than giving you all the context of 50 years, you'll forget it before you even get home. We're going to walk through the context. We'll start today. But as the context changes, we'll look at that as a church family as we go through the books. But overall, let me tell you, chapters 1 through 5 are the preliminary, the prologue remarks of Isaiah that probably were given to us sometime before or right before Uzziah's death in chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 is a familiar passage of Scripture. By the way, there are so many passages of Scripture in Isaiah that are so familiar to us. I, I just can't believe how many passages we love to quote in Isaiah. Side note. Um, verses 1 through 5 are preliminary uh, 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 prologue remarks. Chapter 6, Isaiah receives this call, a very special call of ministry. He sees the Lord seated on the throne. It is the year that Uzziah has died. That's in chapter 6. And in chapter 7, after Uzziah has died, the first king is mentioned in chapter 1. Chapters 7 through 39, making up the first section of the book of Isaiah, is the other three kings. So you have Isaiah chapters 1 through verse 39, speaks of the four kings, mentioned in chapter 1. And we get to chapter 40, with the second section of the book, it speaks of the exile. We'll get to that. Chapters 40 through chapter 54, 55. Chapters 56 through 66 is the return. Not only the return, but Isaiah is going to write about the hope and the promise of the coming king, who we know is Jesus, who will establish an eternal, redeemed, and renewed kingdom. Chapters 1 through 39, the kings, 40 through 55, the exile, 56 through 66, the return and this promise of an eternal kingdom. Now, let me give you a little context of this book. Quickly. We'll start with Genesis 1. <laughs> we'll be here a little bit. But anyway, I'm going to go really quickly here. I'm not going to give you all of the history, but I'm going to give you something that's very important. You know Genesis 1 and 2, God creates what? Man and woman, Adam and Eve, in the Imago Dei, in the image and likeness of God. He gives them everything they need, everything they need to survive, everything they need to thrive, even himself. Then chapter 3, they mistrust God, they rebel against his word, they sin against him, and they listen to the enemy, Satan. Sin enters the world, and they run, they hide. They try to save themselves by their own strength. They try to hide themselves from their shame and their nakedness. 
But in the midst of chaos, in the midst of sin, God speaks, right? You know this verse, God promises, chapter 3, verse 15, that I will, not I might, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise, and you shall bruise his heel. We know that that promise in Genesis 3.15, how someone will be bruised but will fatally kill Satan is Jesus. He is the offspring. Galatians, all of scripture teaches that. His, his, his perfect life, his, his vicarious death destroys the work of the devil, forgives sins, conquers death. And all of scripture from Genesis 3.15 through Revelation is the one great story, this awesome work of redemption through the person and the work of Jesus. So one of the questions we have to ask ourselves as we open up to the book of Isaiah is where is Isaiah in this work of redemption, in this historical work of redemption? I'm glad you asked. From Genesis 3 onward, God is keeping his promise. God makes a covenant with Abraham. He would give him a land. He would give him a lineage, a, 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 an offspring. Numbers that we would never know. More than the sand of the sea and, 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 and stars in the sky. But he also, from his offspring, Abraham's offspring, will come the Lord himself. Not only kings, but the Lord himself will come from him. And he will bless the whole world. Genesis 12, 15, and 17. That covenant and that calling begins the age of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promise, the covenant promise continues. Jacob has 12 sons. The 12 sons of the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel finds themselves in Egypt. Under tyranny. Under, under a slavery. God raises up Moses. If you remember the story. And says in the burning bush, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. They may worship me. He says, like, I, Pharaoh's like, I'm not doing it. He's like, you will. Ten plagues come. And God delivers Israel out of slavery, out of bondage. And he brings them into uh, the wilderness. They wandered for 40 years. But then God makes a covenant again. God's a covenant-making God. He makes a covenant with his people called the Mosaic Covenant where he hands them the law. And it's important to remember God rescues, saves, and redeems his people first. Then he gives them the obligation of this Godward relationship. In Exodus 19, Moses says, look, here's the covenant. We are commanded to obey God. And all the people say, all that God said we will do. Well, they lied. They probably sinned before they went to bed that night, right? The law is good. We're rebellious. It just points us to our need for Jesus. Then you know the story. Moses dies on the, on the eve of entering to the promised land. Exodus closes. Joshua opens up. Joshua comes in, conquers the land. The little peas watching, marching around the wall. The wall collapse. The 12 tribes are given land. And then they get restless. They get restless. They come complacent. We've never been complacent, right? Never. God raises up judges. In the days, Judges, the book of Judges at the end says this. In those days, there's no king in Israel. Everyone, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We get to First and Second Samuel. We already studied this. Samuel, the last judge and a prophet. God's people call out to this judge, this prophet. We want a king. Everyone's got a king. Why can't we have a king? We're not, we're not happy with, with God being our king, our lord, our, our ruler. Ruling through judges. No, we want our own king, like everybody else. So God says, okay, you want a king? I'll give you a king. His name will be Saul. He'll rule over you. Because you guys say he's more handsome and more rugged and more strong. And he's really, really good looking. 
We'll give you that king. Like, that's how you pick a king, right, to rule over you? Some of you ladies going, yeah, that sounds right. And it's not. He refused to bow his knee. And God stripped him of the kingdom and gave it to a shepherd boy named David. David was mighty and great in power and, 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 and solidified the, the, the Israelites. Very important, God made a covenant with Adam. Adam sinned. God promises. God makes a covenant with, with Moses, gives him the law. Now God makes a covenant promise in likeness of Abraham and Adam. And he makes a covenant with King David. Remember, very important, Second Samuel chapter 7. God says to King David, I am going to reign up from, reign, I'm going to bring from your offspring. Just like Abraham, I'm going to raise from your offspring, David, a king. A king that will come, I'll raise him up, and I will establish his kingdom forever. It's a kingdom promise, excuse me, a covenant promise that God makes with King David. That's why Matthew opens up with Jesus being the son of Abraham, keeping his promise, and the son or the offspring of David. Two covenants God keeps in the person and the work of Jesus. Makes that promise to David. Well, David dies and his son Solomon is king. And we know those are called the golden years. Things are really good. Solomon, you know, just, uh, uh, there's lots of wealth. The territories of Israel expand. Good times, but things don't end well with Solomon, remember? The ladies get him in trouble. Or he gets himself in trouble, let me get that right, with the ladies. Solomon dies, very important, and the kingdom splits. Ten tribes of the 12 tribes, 10 of them are called Israel to the north. Two tribes to the south called Judah. Their city, their prominent city is Jerusalem, okay? Kingdom splits. The king Jeroboam to the north rules over the 10 tribes of Israel. And king Rehoboam is king over Judah, the two tribes to the south. North. Ten tribes, south, two tribes. The northern kingdom, Samaria, is their capital. The southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, their capital is Jerusalem. Very important you understand that. Okay, very important. Now, if you've done any kind of study in the Old Testament, you'll know that the ten tribes to the north, called Israel, had how many good kings? Zero. Every one of the kings of Israel was wicked. And the people all followed the kings of Israel's wickedness. They were wicked. God at this point, and you can read this in First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, uh, about their kingdoms. But at this point, God starts raising up prophets. And that's why you need to know what prophet is speaking at what time into what kingdom, north or the south. And you read uh, people like Hosea or Amos or even Elijah and Elisha. They preach to the kingdoms of the north, the ten tribes of Israel primarily. And you got men like Jeremiah and Isaiah preaching judgment unless they repent. They're all preaching about the same thing. You better repent. Judgment's going to come. You have Isaiah and Jeremiah preaching to the southern two kingdoms where Jerusalem is, Judah, warning them the coming judgment. Okay? So with all that being said, now remember where we are in Isaiah 1. It's around 738, 739, 40 B.C., the world is dominated by the Assyrians. There are other world powers, but the Assyrians are, are, are running the show. Amos and other prophets are preaching and warning Israel, the northern kingdoms, to turn from their sin or be judged and to be disciplined and be destroyed and sent into exile. 
for their rebellion. 724 BC, the Assyrian army marches in to the northern kingdom. 724, two years later, 722 BC, the Assyrian army not only marches into northern kingdom, but captures the city of Samaria. And the northern kingdom, the 12 tribes, are put to the end. Isaiah comes on the scene, not only, not only warning Judah of their sin and rebellion and their own destruction by Babylon, we'll get to that later on, but it's only 16, 15, 16 years that Isaiah is preaching and warning Judah that the northern kingdom will be destroyed. So, so think about that. His brothers, his sisters, family, fellow Jews, fellow Israelites, the covenant people of God will be destroyed, sent to exile only 15 or 16 years after Isaiah comes on the scene. Now, by the time, if you got Isaiah 1 open still, I hope you do, by the time we get through Uzziah, we get to Jotham, Assyrian nation is, is pressing Israel, but, but Judah. By the time we get to Ahaz, the northern kingdom is destroyed. And God's going to say, listen, didn't you see what I already did? Will you turn and repent and, and, and be forgiven? All that's very important. Very important context. Now, the southern kingdom, Judah where Jerusalem is, had a couple of good kings, actually. Had a few good kings. They had some kings that were like a mixed bag. You know, I could hope I only make it to that mixed bag because then they had some real bad kings. I don't want to be one of those bad kings. I wouldn't be a good king. I don't want to be a bad king. I'd be a mixed bag king. That's what I would be, right? Um, Uzziah, Jotham, according to Isaiah 1, and Hezekiah, pretty good kings. They had their issues. We'll look at that. But Ahaz was a bad king, and we'll get to that when we get there. One last thing that I want to say to you is this. The role of a prophet, okay, the role of a prophet was to speak forth the message of God to his, pro, to, to, to his people, to his covenant people. They were not primarily foretellers or foretellers, I should say, you know, giving future events. They do do some of that, but their primary function was a spokesman appointed by God to speak to God's people to return back to their God-given covenant relationship. And may I add, the true prophets of God were never wrong. The ones running around today are shysters and people who are just absolutely putting a shame to the word of God. Don't listen to those false prophets today. They've been so wrong this past year or two, it's not even funny. They should be taken out according to the Bible and stoned. That's another story. Okay, sorry for that. It just gets me so crazy, those lunatics. Anyway, all right. Of course, we know the fulfillment of all the prophets is the person and the work of Jesus, right? He's the true and he's the better prophet. He's the one we listen to. Now, for the remainder of time, let's look at, the, we're going to look at 20 verses. I'm going to read them to you. We're going to cover it quickly. We're going to come back. We got 66 chapters to do this in. So we're going to, um, we're going to hit this rather quickly. So four things, four headings. Number one, we're going to see the introduction of the Lord's going to speak. We'll see that in chapter one, verses one and two. And three, verses one through three. Then we're going to see their indictment, their iniquity. 
uh, an indictment against God's people that God speaks. Then we'll see their insincere worship, their hypocrisy that God calls them out on. He, he rejects their sacrifice. He's, he's, he's disdained over their festivals. He's, his prayers are useless, we'll see. And then finally, the invitation. That's the theme of Isaiah, man. There, there, there's, I was telling Ricky, Pastor Ricky this morning, you know, it's just like, God telling me, you know what? I, I, I shouldn't say what I said. I guess I could. Like, you suck, but I'm good. You know what I mean? That's what God is saying. You guys are sinners, but I'm gracious. That's the message. There's a way back. God, God gives us hope. God gives us forgiveness. There's a way back. Let's look at the introduction. The Lord is speaking. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah, the southern kingdom, Jerusalem, the city. In the days of four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, we don't know much about Isaiah. Isaiah was much more willing and wanting to tell not about himself, but about his God. Not much about Isaiah, right? But his name reveals everything we need to know. The the name Isaiah means the Lord is salvation. (laughs) His name tells us that God alone saves it appears as you read the, the, the book that Isaiah had access to the king's court. So many people think that Isaiah had royal blood. There was some, there was some royalty in him. As far as his offspring, uh, Jewish um, tradition says he was the cousin of King Uzziah. He was a man of great commitment. Isaiah was a man of great courage. Isaiah was a man who was unafraid to call out the kings and the priests and unwavering when public opinion was against him. He wasn't distracted. He declared the word of the Lord. He kept calling Judah, come back to God, come back to God. Isaiah was a man who loved his God and who loved his nation. He was also a man who hated sin and false and insincere religious festivals. And although he was carried along, Second Peter tells us, by the Holy Spirit... Isaiah had a masterful way, a skilled way of communicating truth, not just proclaiming the truth, but Isaiah is going to clothe truth in striking language with Hebrew poetry and imagery. And that would catch the attention of the people who were blind, who were deaf to spiritual truth. And the purpose is clear. Isaiah was to call the kingdom of Judah back to God. There were in times at the beginning of this prophecy of this book, there were times of revival. There were times of rebellion. And Isaiah proclaimed the message of repentance from sin and this great hope in God. The hopeful expectation of God's deliverance in the future. And we know that, 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 that hope was in a, a true and better king, a, a suffering servant, a, a conquering king. His name is Jesus the Christ. We know that Isaiah was married. The Bible says he was married to a prophetess. We're not sure if they were given her, they gave her that title because she too prophesied, or maybe she was the wife of a prophet. We're not sure. He had two children, we're going to learn, chapter 8. He named them for a clear prophetic reasons. And when we get through, we'll see in chapters 1 through 5, it was a time of, of wealth and military strength in Judah. In the prologue, these messages, verses 1 through 5, were probably delivered, I believe, on the eve of Uzziah's death. He reigned for 52 years since he was 16, from 792 to 740 B.C. Now, if you go to 2 Kings, we don't go there now, but 2 Kings 15, you'll find, uh, you'll find 
the king Uzziah's name was Azariah. He had a second name, Azariah. But if you go to Second Chronicles, so Second Kings and Second Chronicles both give us detail about Uzziah's reign in Judah. What's going on in chapters one through five? And in Second Chronicles twenty-six, it'll say that Uzziah, the king, I got to make sure I get Isaiah and Uzziah not twisted. It'll say that Uzziah the king was a man who sought after God. He he would seek priestly counsel. He was a military strategist with great success. He attained considerable prosperity and military strength. Uzziah the king of Judah did. But then he got proud. He got proud and God struck him with leprosy. His son Jotham began running the day of the operation while Uzziah was locked up and secluded because of his leprosy. The people loved and prospered under King Uzziah. At the same time as King Uzziah, seven, you know, 740, 750s, 740s BC, at the same time, even though Syria was, you know, the, the military power, they were having lots of problems. Um, history tells us that they had weak kings, famine, revolts, and it, it kind of kept the Assyrian nation kind of quiet. And at the same time, Uzziah is, is having military strength. He's building his kingdom and things are going really, really well. I think I can confidently say that prosperity may be equal, if not more difficult at a time to maintain humble, grateful, and thankfulness toward God. Uzziah was really doing well and then became prideful. You know, I see... I, I, when you read about these folks that have platforms that you and I could, would never understand or could never get to, and they, and they come crumbling down, I'm not justifying their pride, but it, it's got to be difficult when things are going that well to stay humble. At least it would be for me. I reveal my wickedness. In walks Isaiah during this time with Uzziah as king. And he says, verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but you have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. God is a God who speaks. God is a God who wants us to know him and his will. God, Hebrews 1 tells us, spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us finally and fully by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through him, he created the world. Do you want to hear from God? Look to Jesus. Read read his word, study his promise, walk in the spirit. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, Romans tells us. And the prophet Isaiah got this vision, this, this word from God, and he gives it to us by the spirit, and he brings it to his people. And Isaiah is still speaking today, as he is right now. But it's only those who have faith in Christ can hear what he's saying. Notice with me, he's calling heaven and earth to be a a witness in his indictment against his people. What you need to know about this verse is very uh, revealing 
of what took place back in Deuteronomy. God gives Israel the law, the Mosaic covenant. He promises blessing and curse, excuse me, blessing for obedience and curses for disobedience. Four times in Deuteronomy, he calls heaven and earth as witnesses concerning the covenant that he's making with the nation. And by Isaiah's time, both Israel, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, the southern kingdom, keep breaking their covenant, breaking their covenant. And God is threatening them and will remove the ten tribes to Assyria as Assyria comes and destroys the ten king, the ten, the ten tribes. And then he will also send Judah to Babylon. But before doing that, God calls the heavens and the earth, the whole world, to hear the case against his people. Heaven and earth are ready to stand as witnesses. And the rest of Isaiah chapter 1 lays out this devastating case God has against his own people. You know, anyone who, who has children, anyone who loves their children, knows the devastation, the devastation, or many people I should know, know the devastation of, of rebellious and wayward children. Verses 2 and 3 is a cry of a father to his rebellious kids. Kids who ought to know better. Kids who are raised to know their creator. The ox knows its owner. The donkey is master's crib. It's stall. But Israel does not know my people do not understand. The comparison is, 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 is sad. Well, it's funny, but it's, it's also equally as sad. Anyway, they, they, people could tell the stories of being unable to handle a stubborn ox or, or a stupid donkey. Yet everyone also know that these animals were, were smart enough to realize to come home at night. They know where they get their meals. Although they were willing to, to submit, not willing to submit to authorities, these, these oxen, these donkeys, at least maintain their relationship with their owner. In other words, it is unconscionable that children should revolt against a loving father who cares for them, who delivered them and nurtures them. Even senseless oxen and donkeys know their master. But Israel did not realize who it is that cares for them. The Israelites made animals look intelligent. Now, I don't know how many times I'm going to say this through this series, probably a million. Before we judge, let's relate. How often have we seen God care for, nurture, and deliver us, and then right away, we don't trust him with the future? Don't raise your hand. How often does God show himself as mighty, nurturing, caring, and yet we still want to go and do our own thing, go our own way? The introduction of the Lord speaks. Look at the indictment, verse 4. The depth of their iniquity. Verse 4. Ah, oh, woe, sinful nation. nation, A people laden with iniquity. Offspring of evildoers. Children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they're not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Verse 2, the witnesses are called. Now the charges are laid out. Isaiah uses two images to help us see how clueless 
they can be, we can be. The first image about a man who was beaten, his wounds are so bad, he don't even know it. He doesn't even get help. And, and, and Isaiah is showing us not only how, how deep our sin is, but if you look at the language, you'll see how wonderful the privileges are of God's people. Wickedness of their sin and the privileges of God's people. Look what it says. They're rebellious. Their whole head, the mind, their heart, the inner man, the emotions, their affections are sick, are faint. The sole of their feet to the top of their head, there's no integrity. There's no health. In theological terms, we call this total depravity. Total depravity is not that man is completely or absolutely depraved, as if there's no other evil he can do. Total depravity means that every single human being born of Adam is stained and marred and bent and broken and corrupt with sin in every way. It means that we don't naturally think the thoughts of God. Our hearts do not naturally desire the things of God. Our wills do not naturally choose the provision of God through the person of Jesus Christ. It says, this text tells us that they were given to corruption. They are forsaken, turned their back on the Holy One. We'll see that 26 times. The Holy One of Israel, the sovereign creator, the one without, with unblemished purity. To forsake the Lord is to treat him as the last resort rather than the wellspring of life. To despise the Lord is to reject him, treat him with disdain, disrespectfully, irreverently. And yet, look, look at this passage. And God is pleased to institute a bond, a covenant bond with himself and these people. Look who God is talking to. The nation that belongs to him, a people that belongs to him, an offspring that belongs to him, children that belongs to him. You remember in the book of Hebrews, we said, we saw that God, through the author, said that God disciplined those he loves. He chastises or punishes every son he receives. In spurring the Holy One, the people were distancing themselves from God, the source of life. They were, they were disowning that relationship, which was the foundation of their true identity and their associated privileges. They were turning their back. You know, sometimes God has to intervene in our lives. When his children chase idols, for instance, they're stubborn in their sin, they won't repent. God brings severe consequences. They are given to us, his children, to teach us and train us to hate sin as he hates sin. This beautiful language recalls the exodus of the initiating covenant at Sinai. People, God's people can't claim ignorance. They can't change the covenant that God made, the terms of which God has declared. The heaven and earth serve as silent witnesses of this past covenantal history. God cares for his children, tenderly cares for his children. Yet Judah is willfully opposing God, refusing to submit to his authority. The Lord had been a father to them. You know, but like, but, but headstrong, ungrateful children, they rebelled against him. In light of all that God is and all that he is, is holy and all that he has done in his salvation, in the covenant, their rebellion is inexcusable. This is what Jonathan Edwards said. Our obligation to love, honor, and obey any being is in proportion to his loveliness, honor, and authority. Therefore, sin against God being a violation of infinite obligations must be a crime of infinite heinous, heinous and so deserving infinite punishment. If there's any evil 
in sin against God, it is infinite evil, end quote. You know, we have a tendency to, to minimize how serious and heinous sin is, to ignore the impact in our lives. The people of God have rebelled. They turned their back. They deeply interrupted their covenant relationship. Bringing, we can only, we can only imagine, bringing God's rebellious children to trial was a very special grief for the judge as the parents. Verse 7, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned to fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land as desolate, as overthrown by foreigners, as the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Isaiah's other image is, is not a body, but a desolate and conquered land where, who cannot recognize a humiliation. Some interpreters uh, um, read verse 7 as literal, but I think it's more figuratively of what's going to come. Can you imagine, look at verse 9, what it would be like for Israel to, to be compared by Isaiah the prophet to the city, the, the city Jerusalem, to the wicked city of Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 9. Because of their sin, their land will be desolate, a wasteland burned by enemies or burned by foreigners. The only thing left in Jerusalem and Zion is a booth, a temporary shelter made of branches, a lodge or a hut in a cucumber field. A far cry from being this strong and, and fortified city and community is now a hut, unprotected picture of misery. But notice God's grace already. Notice God's grace in verse 9. It's a major motif throughout this book. God calls creation to account. God judges his creation for their sin, but he shows himself as merciful and gracious. Verse 9. If the Lord of hosts, the all-powerful, omnipotent God, had not left us a few survivors, if he had not stepped in, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. At this point, the distinction between Sodom and Gomorrah and Israel is not the behavior, but the grace that God showed who stepped in and didn't destroy everything as he did to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a miracle. I, you know why? You look around and you say, it's a miracle that the church is, is thriving, that people are being saved, and, and the kingdom of God is, is increasing, and the church is growing with a bunch of people like me. That's a miracle. God stretches out a hand and says, I'm not going to let you go. I'm going to build my church. No one will snatch them out of your hand, out of my hand. Apart from God's preserving grace, we would relive the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The only reason why we are here is his overruling mercy, his grace, and saving us from ourselves. The Lord speaks. The indictment Look thirdly at the insincere worship. Hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now he's saying, <laughs> the people are no different than these corrupt towns that turn their back on God's holy standards. Sodom is the place where sin abound, where shame and, and restraint abounded, where the sinful lifestyle is openly affirmed and celebrated. Verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of your burnt offerings and rams. 
and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come and appear before me, worship me. Who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, the gathering. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your moon, new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. The depth of my being, they have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Let, let, me, let me just summarize what Isaiah is saying. Your religiosity doesn't impress me. In fact, it makes me sick. You know, saying, I had it up to here. God reveals his heart about religious hypocrisy. He detests their habitual sacrifices, verse 11. Their incense, verse 13. God hates their festivals, verse 14. Even their prayers are offensive to God, verse 15. Now, Isaiah is not disparaging the, the prescribed animal sacrifices and the festivals. Instead, he's condemning the disconnect between the sacrifice and the ritual and the festivals and the heart. 1 Samuel 15, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. God had enough of their hypocrisy. He takes no pleasure in that kind of worship. And what should shock us is, what should shock us is, God said, do this. This is the command. This is prescribed by God. It's not the use, but the abuse of divine orders that pleases the Lord. God cares about the heart. He'll say in Isaiah 29, because his people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's important for us today, beloved. It is so easy to get into the pattern of religious observance, yet our hearts grow weary to gather on Sunday morning, to gather in community, and to do the things like taking communion, like baptism, and yet our hearts draw away, not near, to see the need and the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. Here's something to think about. Are we going through the motions, doing the things, yet we forget that God intends our formalities, which we have, to be symbolic of an inward affection toward him. Listen, our hearts, our affection, attitude toward God is more important than our faultless performance of worship. Look at verse 15. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Hmm. I'm not listening. My face is not uh, shining upon you. My eyes and my ears... I'm alienating you. I'm not hearing you. As you raise your hands as a symbol of asking God for favor, seeking his help. God is saying your sin, your sinfulness, your hypocrisy has kept you from the access. I've hidden my eyes. I've hidden my face. Rather than First Timothy, right? We are to raise our holy hands in prayer. So your hands are filled with blood. Unrepented sin. Edward J. Young in his commentary said this. I just want to read it to you. It's really helpful. The sacrifices themselves has been prescribed by God. When, however, the offerer attentions, when, however, the offerer attention was directly only to the sacrifice and not to the proper object of that sacrifice, the offering became no different from those brought by heathens. Having abandoned a true view of the one to whom they are sacrificing, men place their emphasis upon the sacrifice itself. And thus came to the belief that such an offering was necessary to God. 
They thus bring the offering of their hands, but at the same time, listen, withhold the integrity of their hearts. Without faith, it is impossible to please God in worship or any aspect of life. Worship in... Where am I? Okay, worship... Yeah, any aspects of life. Here's the bottom line. Here's what the bottom line is, right? Outward forms and ceremonies are ways to express truth, yes. But when procedure, which was going on, takes precedence over spiritual dimensions or spiritual formation of worship, the activity itself becomes corrupt and crooked. And we, the children of God, need to be careful. Especially when we think that our mere repetition of religious act is somehow notorious, somehow earning us a right and access and acceptability before God. No. There's only one way back. And that's the invitation, verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds before your eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fathers. Plead the widow's cause. These verses teach us not only about false and fake and hypocrisy in their worship, but how important in our time of worshiping our God is repentance. Repentance is not a form of self-punishment. It's a privilege given us by the Holy Spirit as he opens our eyes and opens our minds and opens our hearts to see how costly and evil our sins are. And then God grants us the gift to turn from our sins and turn to him. God says, come, wash yourself. He's not saying earn your way. This is not earn your way into salvation. Be moral so I accept you. They are already the covenant people of God. He's saying repent, wash yourself. That's your responsibility to repent. Start acting like the covenant people you are. Turn from your sins. Remove the evil. Literally, that means repent, turn. Then he says, cease to do evil, learn to do good. Isn't that repentance? Stop doing what you're doing and turn. Cease doing bad and what? Do good. Stop doing your sin, walk with Jesus. That's where repentance is, a, a whole turning to God, a whole new manner of life. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless. Correct oppression has to do with not allowing sin to continue without consequences. Judge or bring justice to the fathers. Give the orphan the right. Treat them kindly. Plead the widow's cause. Listen, there are helpless people out there that cannot, cannot help themselves. We need to help them. If you do, your worship will please me. Become active in, in, in compassion. Be a people that are just and are true especially those who have been hurt, especially those who, who nobody else cares for, the people who, who, who may not pay you back. Set the wrongs right. That's beautiful worship. But you may ask at this point, and we're going to close in a couple of minutes, ask yourself at this point, what about their sin? What about their sin? Come. Verse 18, beautiful portion of scripture. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. 
Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Come. Andrew Davis says, means, come, let us settle this. Let us talk about all this. Let us reason with you to forsake your sin. Come to your senses and come home to God who loves you. Andrew Davis exalting Jesus. Listen, there's no argument Judah has sinned. There's no argument. No need to reevaluate their hearts and their hypocrisy. No reason to reconsider whether they gave justice or not. They failed. Your sins are like scarlet. It's irrefutable. Reason means come before the judge. Think after his thoughts. It's not bargaining with him. It's thinking his thoughts. In fact, all sin is unreasonable. And instead of the judge pronouncing judgment, look what he does. He offers pardon. God offers grace through forgiveness to restore the relationship if Judah is willing to repent. God does not have an agenda just to terminate his relationship, but to show himself merciful. As the Lord calls his people before heaven and earth to the bar of the of his cosmic justice, where of course, of course they are found guilty, is there where you hear words of free pardon. Here's the invitation. The band, you guys can come on up. Here's God's invitation. You, you present your blood-stained hands in open confession. I'll wash you with the blood of Jesus, and your worship will come alive. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Scarlet and crimson, ancient dyes. That would hardly, and very difficult way, uh, it would, it, it, it's striking, and it wouldn't fade very quickly. No matter how deep God is saying, no matter how deeply fixed the stain, God promises his remedy to the situation for his people. Now, look closely. In God's cosmic courtroom, who deals with sin? God regards the sins of his people, your sin, my sin, as red blood. But it says, He will regard it as white as snow. He will, even though it's red like crimson, he will make them white like wool. Well, how does he do that? How how does God offer this forgiveness, this mercy, this pardon, this life to men who will turn from their sins? We're still sinners. The very point when judgment expected, God intervenes. We know Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. What can wash away our sins, right? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We're gonna sing, wash me white as snow, it's only by your blood. Wash me white as snow in crimson flood. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess, homo logos, agree with God, we are sinners. If we confess our sins, he is faithful, not us. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of all our sins and to cleanse us, to wash us of all unrighteousness. That's the message. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ Perfect sacrifice, blood shed at Calvary, forgives repented sinners.
If you're willing and obedient, you'll eat the fruit, the good of the land. If you refuse and rebel, you'll be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Hear, O heaven. Hear the word of the Lord. And now we end with the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Perry Jones said there are two destinations, two roads. We see it right here. Right? Sin left this deepest stain, this indelible, uh, that's indelible ink, red ink in the sight of God who sees all, forgets nothing, but he's able to wash our scarlet stain through the worship, through the, through the work in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He makes sinners white as snow through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The choice is ours, family. The choices are. Are you willing? Are you willing to acknowledge your sin? Are you willing to turn from your sin? Are you willing to have God wash you with the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what communion is all about. So maybe you're a follower of Christ and you've been a follower of Christ and yet there's, there's things in your life you just refuse to let go. By God's grace today, today's the day. Confess, repent, and be washed in the blood of Jesus. But maybe you're here this morning, you've never, ever received Christ as Lord and Savior. The heavens and the earth will give an account. The word of God will hold you accountable. You're a sinner like me. Turn to Jesus. Trust in his work. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. And those who call upon him, turn from their sin and turn to him. Stop being your own savior. Turn to him as your savior. He'll forgive you of your sins and wash you in his blood. So grab a cup together, wherever you are. Maybe it is the first day of your salvation, of of taking of the cup. Or maybe there's just things in your life. We're just going to spend a couple of minutes quietly as you get the bread ready. Just open that top layer here. This represents the broken body of Jesus who went to the cross and willingly died for your sins. Let's just spend a moment in prayer and confession and repentance and then we'll celebrate the work of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, in some ways, Isaiah 1 just seems like a time where you are just tearing walls down. Tearing walls down. And yet, here at the end, you are offering hope, grace, mercy, forgiveness. Lord, we have to acknowledge the bad news before we hear the good news. Lord, thank you for the offer of forgiveness. Thank you for the offer of hope. We are hopeless without you. We need you. Forgive us of our sins. Wash us and cleanse us, Lord. And empower us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name. Let's take the bread and eat together. body of Christ broken for you then Jesus took the cup he said this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood drink Father thank you for our time strengthen us encourage us we pray through the work of Jesus in his name